Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. If you look at our area here where we have plenty of animals, domesticated animals like horses and mules and goats, uh, if you couldn't go to the feed store and buy bags of food, you'd have to be able to feed them in some way. And how would you do that? Yeah, that's true. I think if you look back at our history, a lot of, a lot of the time uh, for the average workday was invested in harvesting grain, you know, making haystacks and laying, that, lay, laying those provisions up for the winter months so that you could carry the animals through, you know, in a more austere way, like if we're just wandering around the mountains, I'm not sure what you would try to feed them because – Oftentimes in the double canopy forest, there's really not much by way of grasses and things like that. That would be interesting to to study that. Well, of course, in the canopied forest, the upper canopy really prevents the growth of a lot of the lower plants that we might actually use for food. So you mm-hmm. wouldn't have to get to a more open area, as you suggested, to find those low-lying plants that you could rely on. Yeah, and that's one interesting point about the study of plants is learning where certain plants like to grow. You know, there, there are some plants that you will only find next to water. That's the only place that they like to grow. Uh, things like jewel weed, which is the cure for uh, poison ivy or anything that itches, basically. And then yellow root, it's, it's commonly found next to the water. And then there are some things that you usually find higher up in the mountains, such as rock tripe. It's... Uh, it's something that grows on the rocks, kind of looks like leather. It wouldn't be one of your choice foods. It would be a last-ditch kind of emergency type of food because there's a lot of process involved with it. But learning uh, where the plants like to grow helps you find that particular plant, you know, such as Pipsisawa is a plant that, that I use to treat kidney stones and urinary tract ailments with. And it, usually you find it, in an area that's got some pines but also has some deciduous trees there. It kind of likes an acidic soil. It likes to be shaded. And and usually where there's a lot of litter on the floor, such as leaves and fallen trees and things of that nature. That's really a a good point to discuss because uh, a while ago I interviewed a gentleman from the American Chestnut uh, Society, and he was talking about that fact that if you don't clear-cut certain areas of forest, you don't give an opportunity for the young plants to grow up. And along with those young plants are some of the animals which come out into a clear-cut area with low-to-the-ground plants, and that's where they feed. So would not that be maybe a site to set traps? Sure. Uh, Yeah, when you're thinking about traps, you have to 
you have to locate what the animals need to live. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is find a burrow, you know, wherever it is that they live in the ground, and you know they're going to be coming and going. And usually the trails are, are pretty obvious, and that's a, a really good spot. If you can find where they get their water between their shelter and their water is a good spot to make traps. And every, a lot of the things that I teach, I teach on a very basic level. Uh, I keep it caveman simple, so to speak. Like one of the traps that I use is called a promontory peg, and you can literally do it with a stick and a rock. You don't have to have wire or cordage or any of that. And so by keeping things simple you know, and, and robust, it just enables you to, to survive better because the more complicated the system is, the more moving parts it has, the more prone it is to failure. I'm speaking with Alan Kay. Uh survivalist uh, his website his email is alan at alan k survival.com uh alan we talked about energy and the, the amount of energy used to make stuff versus the amount of energy it provides and i think that's a really important point we talked about trail mix which you buy in a bag comes from all around the world so one question would be if you were to make trail mix here as you're walking through the woods what would you actually put in the back? You mean if I make it out of what I can find in the woods? Yeah. It would probably consist of earth, dried earthworms, crickets, wood ants, things of that nature, slow-moving protein. You know, uh, there again, back to the reality versus romantic notions people have. You know, it's not always some big uh, buffalo steak roasting over a fire. Most often you're going to eat things that you can actually get a hold of without a lot of energy. And, and earthworms are one of those things. You know, you get under logs, you turn rocks over, and you can find things like that. And, and they're very uh, dense, actually pound for pound. Usually bug meat is higher in protein than a hamburger is. So, And it's an acquired thing. I mean, culturally, we don't do that in our country, but in other countries they eat bugs quite frequently. And once you get past the, uh, the psychological boundaries there, it's uh, – it, it really makes sense because they're out there and, and they're easily obtained. And that's the thing is being able to get the stuff, you know. You know, I, I, you just reminded me of something that sort of combines our taste for luxury with the basic things. And when, when I was younger, that all the rage were these chocolate-covered ants. Mm -hmm. And that sort of strikes me as kind of ridiculous when you think about it because you know who would want to eat that but what you're saying is that under survival circumstances you have to look for things that will provide you with the protein that you need because protein is very important otherwise your muscles will waste so how do you for instance how would you prepare earthworms what what do you do that makes them well edible there's a few different approaches you can use uh, with some animals, it's recommended that you capture them and you basically purge them. You, you deprive them of food and let them eliminate all of their waste, and, and then you go about preparing them and consuming them. And, and I honestly don't don't usually do that. I'll just, with earthworms, for instance, I'll, I'll pinch one end off and then just squeeze it out like a tube of toothpaste to get all the, the excrement out of the worm. And then just throw them on a hot rock and cook them up that way. With, with a lot of bugs, it, it really is good to cook them because they can have parasites, and those parasites can actually make you quite ill. In, in the instance of uh, slugs and some snails, they're 
is a parasite, and I can't recall the name. Starts with an A. It's one of those six dollar Latin words, but basically what it does is it gets into your body and it attaches. Uh, I think one of them actually attaches to your brain, and then it just gets bigger and bigger. And I think you die from something that's the equivalent of a cerebral hemorrhage. So it's it's a good idea to cook uh, a lot of your bug meat and things like that just to make sure that you're not going to ingest a parasite. One of the things you spoke about when you were uh, on a loan was eating limpets, and I know you ate a whole bunch of limpets. So what is a limpet, and how do you, what do you do to it? Limpets are fascinating creatures. Uh, they, they have a shell, kind of this conical little shell, and they cling to the rocks. And when they feel any vibration at all, if they feel you approach them, basically they're just like a, a suction cup type of a muscle. And, and they'll actually clamp down on the rock, and you'll see the the water squirt out from under the shell. And when you see that emission of water, you know that he's locked down. And it's so strong that you can take a stone and actually strike the limpet, and, and you'll break his shell getting him off the rock. That's how strong they are. So you have to develop, when you're foraging for them, you use stealth. You actually come at them with more of a, a sweeping motion with your hand or a glancing blow with a stick or a stone and withdraw them from the rock before they get the chance to clamp down. And one of the great things from a survival standpoint is limpets are one of the things that can be eaten safely raw. So I didn't have to cook those. So I could actually just, you know, pluck them off the rocks and, and eat as many as I wanted to along with some seaweed. So, and, and that's important too. You want to mix your diet up. You don't want to, you know, try to exist just on, on meat. You know, you do need fibers and you need uh, some plant matter in your diet. So by combining the limpets with the seaweed, I felt like I was getting more of a balance. You know, we need several things to survive. We need vitamins. We need minerals. We need fats. We need salt. You know, we need water. We need all of those things. And we need protein like you've mentioned. Are limpets kind of like snails in, the, in that? Are they like similar or Limpets are very firm. They have a very firm texture. Uh, not not very robust flavor. I would liken it to maybe uh, a very well-cooked shrimp. You know, have, if you overcook shrimp, they get a bit chewy. It, they're kind of like that. And then, of course, when you cook them, the, it changes the whole dynamic. And, and I had it both ways up there. I would often add them to, to soups when I, when I would make. That's another thing. Soup is the way to go for survival. Have a metal container with you, and just oftentimes it, your meals are going to be eclectic. You just find whatever you can, and you get bits of this and bits of that, and it all culminates, you know, into this soup. And by preparing it in that fashion, it does a couple of things. If you have a lid, you know, you're utilizing all of your nutrients, and you're getting the juice, the broth, everything. And the other thing is uh, to render the food safe to eat, we really don't have a way to gauge temperature out in the woods. So when I see that rolling bowl, that gives me a visual feedback that, that we've reached a certain level of temperature. And then I can gauge time, even if I'm just guessing, and I can, I can know that it's been rendered safe to eat. You know, you mentioned safety, and obviously when you're alone and you can't run over to the emergency room or urgent care, you have to be careful about what you do put in your mouth. How, what kind of tips can you give us about that? Well, with plants, uh, especially plants and mushrooms, uh, you, you definitely want to be 100% sure of your identification. You know, that's something you just can't gamble with. You, you can't 
you can't guess at that. You either know a hundred percent beyond a shadow of a doubt that this thing is safe to eat, or you don't. You don't eat it. Uh, it's just not worth the risk. And you know, and in the hierarchy of survival, uh, like we've established, food is not what generally is going to kill us or a lack thereof. It's going to be the core temp. It's going to be hydration. It's going to be injury, things like that. So there's really no no reason to take that severe of a risk just to get a little bit of food. And, I mean, there's a lot of survival manuals out there that have what's called the universal edibility test, and it's this very long, drawn-out thing that it's it'd be really hard to, to, A, even remember it in a survival situation or adhere to it. And I really don't think it's entirely accurate because there are some plants and fungi that even in little amounts, you know, if you, you could have some problems with it. And you have to do research, too, because, you know, different plants, look at nut allergies, for instance. You know, I, I love peanuts, but there are some people, they get in the room with peanuts and they have severe trouble, anaphylactic shock even. And plants are the same way. You know, it, you might encounter a situation where that plant has some type of, of chemical reaction with your body that is that is a negative one. And I've seen it a couple of times with people. There's a friend of mine, um, she has a latex allergy. And there are a couple of plants we came to find out that mimic latex. And she actually had some reactions from just touching those plants. And so that was that was a learning experience for me. I'd never considered that. You mentioned the importance of hydration. Oh, yeah. Hydration is hugely important. Well, how do you know the water is safe? And what do you do to make it safe if you're not sure? Well, generally, you know, we're going to consider the source of the water. That That's going to be the first consideration. And unless it's coming right out of the ground at the spring head, which we're blessed with here in the mountains, we've got lots of water and lots of good water. Uh, generally, boiling is is the easiest way to make sure that that water is safe. Uh, you can filter water or you could chemically treat water. There's a lot of different ways to go about it. But, but as a general rule, you know, if you boil the water, you're going to be okay, unless you're dealing with some type of a chemical, and then boiling won't, won't render it safe. So when you found the water uh, out in the Pacific Northwest, you had to assume that it was contaminated in some way or potentially unsafe? Well, the water there, uh, my primary concern was cryptosporidium or giardia. You know, things maybe where there's some fecal matter around there from animals that has leached into it. That That's really the concern in an area like that. So, actually, my water was just uh, more of a seepage in the ground. And because of all of the, the needles and the leaf litter, uh, it actually looked like Earl Grey tea. It, was, it had so much tannic acid in it. And my hair and everything was a different color from using that water to, to wash with. It actually dyed my hair for a time there and my fingernails. But, yeah, I just boiled it. I really didn't try to filter it or do anything else to it. I would, I would just boil the water. And you hear people say, well, the, it needs to boil for X amount of minutes or what have you. And, I mean, I guess you could make different arguments different ways. But me personally, once it reaches a boil, uh, a good hard rolling boil, I think it's good. And I haven't ever gotten sick from anything that I've I've done, and I've spent a lot of time out there. So, that's, for me, it's a safe rule: let it boil a minute. Some people say five minutes. If you want to, it's not going to hurt anything, but it, I don't think it's necessary to boil it. You know. Obviously, you had fire. Okay, mm-hmm. so how do you go about making fire? That year, I think they said it was fourteen feet of rain that uh, 
they received on the island. So in that environment, fire was really, really challenging. Uh, I had a standing dead cedar tree that I would take uh, sections, you know, six, seven, eight feet, just kind of pry off of that tree. It was a standing dead kind of punky wood. And I would take that into my shelter and using my knife, I would, I would take really fine, long curls using my knife, kind of like a draw knife, pulling it to myself. And then I would rub those between my hands to break the fibers down even more. So it was, it was really challenging. The tender preparation was crucial, you know, in material selection of, of what you're going to burn in an area like that. Uh, I carried with me a ferro rod, which is it's a man-made alloy that when, when scraped with your knife blade, it produces sparks. And so that's what I used. Uh, here locally, I do a lot of fire by friction, you know, through primitive means. There's a plant that grows all over the side of the road and called mullen. And there's probably somebody listening to the radio will say, oh, yeah, I've seen you on the side of the road <laughs> gathering that stuff because that's what I do. I, I wait till it dies, and then I get all of those stalks and save it so that when I'm teaching classes, I can use that. But it's one of the very best things to use for a hand drill. Uh, you can do a bow drill out of a lot of different woods, cedar white pine basswood all of that works and then also the yucca which we don't have a lot of but we do have some here the yucca spindles uh, can be used for friction fire as well so you were able to make fire <clears throat> you had a, a you had a tool with you which brings up an interesting point first of all you were allowed to take 10 items from a list mm-hmm. what were those 10 items that you did choose and why did you choose them I took an axe, uh, a small bow saw, my knife. Those were the three cutting implements that I chose. And the reason I chose to take all three is because I had the, I was under the impression that I would be processing a lot of firewood, and I didn't know what type of structures I may have to build or if, if I w- might have to construct some type of a, of a raft. You know, I just it was so open-ended. I decided to take all three of those because with those three, cutting implements you can pretty much handle any task that that might arise outdoors Uh, i took a a pot it it had a two liter capacity and i took a canteen that was also metal stainless steel so i had two metal containers i took some copper not copper but brass wire and my thought process behind the wire was i might use it for snares or to lash things together and i really never even used the wire I took some fish hooks in line. I also never used those, never got my fish that way. You know, all the fish that I got, I obtained them through the use of a gill net, which was one of my items, and then uh, trapping with the little bottles. That, that worked very well every day. Another item that I took was a ferro rod, which we discussed. And I took a sleeping bag, but it was insufficient. It was like a 40-degree bag that I've had for years, and that was a poor choice. But, but I took it nonetheless, and it worked out. But, yeah, out of all of that, I think the key piece of equipment would have been the metal container. You know, I can improvise uh, cutting implements out of stone, and there's other ways you can get around cutting things. But it's really hard in nature to improvise something like a metal container that I could actually take this thing and put liquid in it, put it on a fire, boil the liquid, and carry it to a secondary location, and that vessel doesn't burn up. You know, there are some primitive means that, you can use to to boil water it's like indirect heat sources where you heat up stones and then put it into a container that couldn't be placed on the fire such as a tightly woven basket a hollowed out log things like that 
but it's it's more labor intensive and uh, it just eats up right back to energy. You know, it burns energy and time. So a metal container is something that we really take for granted. If you look back at the trade between the Europeans when they first came here and the natives, uh, metal containers, little pots, were among some of the most sought-after items by the natives. And, and for that reason, they just made life so much easier. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh, <laughs>